Good morning. I saw some of y'all out there dancing around to that music. Take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 18 this morning. Luke chapter 18. And this is week two of our summer sermon series called Actually the Bible Doesn't Say That. And so each Sunday what we're doing is we're examining different mythical sayings or ideas or thoughts that are predominant in our culture and that have even crept in and can creep into our lives if we're not careful, even in the church. Uh, things, ideas, thoughts, sayings that people assume come from God's Word, but the Bible actually never communicates. So the idea that we are going to uh, take a look at this morning has to do with how you get to heaven. I read a story this week about a Sunday school teacher uh, who had a big, he's teaching a, a class of kids, second graders, had a big class of second graders and decided he wanted to explain to them uh, what they had to do to get to heaven. But he decided before he did that, he wanted to find out what they already knew. And so he fired off some questions to them and some kind of some diagnostic questions to see where they're at. And he said, all right, class, he said, I want to ask you this. When we think about how we get to heaven, uh, the first question is this. If I sold all of my stuff, all of my belongings, I sold my house, my car, emptied out my bank accounts, I sold everything I had and gave all my money to a missionary, would that... Uh, be enough to get to heaven? And they said, no. And he said, okay, my second question. If I, if I just spent all my time at the church cleaning the church and mowing the grass at the church and just serving as much as I can at the church, would that be enough to get me to heaven? The class said, no. He said, okay, well, what if I was just a really, really nice person all the time? In fact, every single day I just went out to our community and I gave uh, little kids, needy kids toys, just gave toys away every single day. Would that be enough to get me to heaven? He said, no. He said, okay, well, let me ask you the question. How can somebody get into heaven? What do you got to do to get to heaven? A little boy in the back raised his hand and said, you got to be dead. <laughs> now, all of us, he's right. Now, all of us have heard jokes about, you know, uh, how do you get to heaven, the pearly gate, St. Peter, you know, stopping people, asking questions. Um, but this morning, I really want to, all joking aside, I want us to, to seriously, uh, thoughtfully, most importantly, consider a question this morning. And I don't want you to answer this out loud. I don't want you to answer this out loud. You with me? I want us to consider this question and think about it deeply this morning. Do good people go to heaven? Do good people go to heaven? Now, it's not unusual to find people out in our community, out in our culture, people we know in our families, who uh, think that the answer to that question is yes, that the way you get to heaven is by being a good person. But you'd actually be surprised about how many people within the church, how many people even in this room this morning who think that what you do in this life and what you don't do in this life determines whether or not you're going to be right with God for all of eternity. And if you're here and you're under that false impression, the Bible, as we're going to see, teaches that, and what we're going to discover this morning, is that it actually never says that. So to dispel this myth uh, that good people get to heaven... We're going to look at a very familiar story that Jesus shared in Luke chapter 18. It's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Maybe your translation reads uh, publican. So tax collector and publican are the same guy. And we're going to begin to read in verse 9. Stand with your Bibles open. And let's begin to read in verse 9. He, Jesus, also told the parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Contempt. Uh, two 
men went into the temple to pray. Here's the story. One, of, one was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like the tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector right here, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified, rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Would you have a seat as I pray? God, I pray that you would be our teacher this morning. Lord, I pray that you would protect this room from this man's opinion. God, I thank you for your word. I pray that your word would help us to get a a bigger, more biblical view of who you are. And by seeing you for who you are, it would help us to correctly see ourselves. Lord, I pray if there's people here who are, are lost and who are maybe even trying in their lostness to get to you in a way that does not align with Scripture and that leaves them in their sins. Lord, I pray that this morning the gospel would be made clear and that today would be the day of their salvation. And I pray for those of us who know you, who have a relationship with you, that we would be encouraged as we remember, Lord, the mercy that you've shown us and the relationship we have with you that is eternal and that's permanent. And Lord, I pray that we would leave here with a heart more full of gratitude for what you've done for us and how much you love us. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing that uh, Luke, the author of this gospel account, gives, uh, gives us is the audience that Jesus is directing his teaching here to. The story that he, the, the lesson that he's teaching through the story here, he's uh, helping us understand who this is directed towards. Verse 9, it says, to those, it's directed to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. All right, so he's referring there to Pharisees. And then he tells this story immediately after he says that, this parable, to call them out about something specific. In this parable, Jesus presents two characters, and he presents the setting of the story. And, and right there, with just the characters and just the setting of the story where this is taking place, this would have been a pretty radical thing for the people to hear as they're hearing Jesus say this and as they're taking in this story. You have a Pharisee, one character, who in that culture was seen as very godly, seen as very righteous, uh, who's going to the temple. And then you also have the tax collector who is going to the temple and they're going together and they're praying together here at this temple. So this story already sounds really crazy to the original audience. Those who are hearing Jesus share this story. All right, this is, it's hard for us to understand that, but it's like if I, if, if, if I was to say, Hey, picture Mother Teresa and like your crazy, wild Uncle Ricky going to the church together and praying together. We all have that kind of crazy uncle in our family, right? The one that, you know, you're not, so, you're not sure if he's going to show up for Thanksgiving, but if he does, everybody's kind of walking on eggshells because you're not sure what he's been up to. You're not sure if he's going to make things awkward. You know what I mean? We all kind of have that guy in our family. Most of us do. All right, so... All of us would go, yeah, those, Mother Teresa and, 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 and my crazy uncle, those two things don't go together, right? Them going to church together and praying together, those things don't go together. And that's the way these people would have thought about this Pharisee and this tax collector showing up at the temple on the same scene to pray. They don't belong together. Again, you have the Pharisee, well-respected in a very highly religious community, looked up to. He was one, he was part of 
a group, being a Pharisee of two major groups within that religious community. The other one was the Sadducees. And uh, the Pharisees were highly respected. They were viewed as men of God. They were viewed as very holy and right with God. And then you have the tax collector. In the culture, the tax collector was viewed by Jews as a traitor, as a lowlife. All right, you have the Israelites who, as a nation, were very proud to be people of God. God was their leader. God was their king. All right, and so you have them, you know, with the really deep passion and feeling. God is our leader, and yet the Roman government has come in and occupied them and is charging them like crazy amounts of taxes, and they hate the Roman government. They don't think that the Roman government should be ruling over them. The emperor, the king should be ruling over them, the king of Rome. God is their leader. So they hated Rome. They hated the fact that Rome taxed them. And the way that Rome kept control of their area when it came to taxes is that Rome would actually hire a Jewish person, a person within that community, to be the tax collector. Okay, And so if you're a tax collector, you're a Jewish tax collector, you're seen as a traitor. You're seen as wicked. And this kind of explains why these guys would take the job in the first place. Usually a tax collector was a pretty sketchy guy already. And so these tax collectors had the reputation of being swindlers, of stealing from their fellow Jews, right? It was not uncommon for a tax collector to overcharge people. Like, hey, Rome, you owe Rome $30, pay up, all right? $20 for Rome, $10 for me, the tax collector. They were lying in their pockets with money. So these guys were hated, they were despised, they were considered unclean in that Jewish culture. So you have this Pharisee and this tax collector in this little story. You have one known for his goodness, one known for how bad he was. Both go to the temple to pray and only one walks away justified. Only one walks away with eternal life. Only one walks away championed by God with a heart that God celebrates into the shock of everyone listening to Jesus' story, standing there listening to what Jesus is telling them. It wasn't the Pharisee that walks away justified. It's not the Pharisee that walks away right with God. So let's kind of begin at the end of the story there in verse 14. The tax collector is the one who walks away justified. The tax collector is the one with a heart that's celebrated by God at the end of this story, who God promises to exalt. And it's completely, the outcome of this is completely opposite of what the culture and the listeners of that day would have been expecting. You know, the ending of the story is still the opposite of what culture today is still the opposite of what human nature today in our own hearts today would expect. But Jesus, as he often does, comes along and he flips everything upside down. And he shows us the truth about who actually goes to heaven, who actually is made right with God. So this morning, what I want to do I want us to look, at, to look at three things about this haughty, prideful, externally good Pharisee. Three things that keep him out of the kingdom of God. And then I want us to look at two things about this humble tax collector or publican, uh, as your Bibles may say, that allows him entrance into the kingdom of God. Let's start with the haughty Pharisee. Three things I want us to notice about him. Number one, he proudly trusted in his own righteousness or goodness. It says in verse 14 that Jesus is addressing these Pharisees who it says trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And then he uses this story to illustrate that. And it's clear that that, that the Pharisee in this parable, that he's trusting in a spiritual resume. That all of the good and religious things that he's proudly accomplished, all of the bad things that he's proudly avoided is what he's leaning on to make him right with God. But notice everything that he's trusting in is external. 
Everything that he's trusting in is behavior modification, is religious deeds. Everything is about his behavior. And it makes sense that people think this way. Like this Pharisee, we can understand this because naturally, as human beings, by nature, we're very behavior-driven people. We're very reward-driven people. Like if you go to school, make good grades, you get rewarded. I take my kids to the dentist if they are good patients in the chair. They get to go by the treasure chest on the way out and get a reward. By the way, I think that they should not stop that once you like become an adult because it's hard to be good in that chair, even as an adult. Bring back the treasure box for the adults, right? We like rewards. Um, we grow up in a culture that operates that way, right? You do right, you do good, you get rewarded. Your workplace operates that way, right? You do good work, like what's usually happens you get some kind of reward you get maybe a raise or a promotion we are just naturally wired to think that good behavior equals good reward so it's no surprise that we naturally bring that idea into our spiritual worldview and think well generally speaking if i do good in this life for god if i work hard to be a good person in this life then i'll get a good reward from god in the next and if that's you if you're like Yeah, I I kind of agree with that. If I work really hard to be good in this life, then God will reward me and give me a good reward in the next. I'll be right with Him. Well, if that's you and you would say, yeah, I think I'm a good person, I would say, compared to what? What is good? And that leads us to the second point. The Pharisee thrived on comparison with others. Notice that. Verse 11, he says, God, I thank you. Now, he starts there, he's praying, and you're like, well, he kind of starts off with a you know, on the right path there, it seems. God, I thank you. That seems like a model prayer until you keep reading. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And then he begins to list off everybody's sins. I thank you that I'm not like the extortioners, the unjust, adulterers. And then he rudely even points out the tax collector who's standing right there who can hear him. God, I'm glad I'm not like sticky finger Steve over here, the tax collector, this wicked, despised, Corrupt, And thank you that I'm not like him. Thank you, God, that I'm not like that guy. What is he doing right here? Here's what he's doing. He's grading himself on a curve. He's measuring his goodness by the standard of other people's morality around him. And then in arrogance, what he's doing is he's assuming that God must look at the situation the same way he does. And that God will grade his life the same way and reward him accordingly. But here's the problem. You won't find anywhere in Scripture that says our standing before God is based on how we compare to people around us. And yet that's how a lot of people think. Notice Jesus also says the Pharisees treated others with contempt, which is where the comparison game and grading yourself on a curve always leads to contempt. And we have to also be careful, time out here, as Christians, to be very careful this doesn't creep back into our life. Because if you, hey, you better be careful you're not placing your identity in you being a good church boy or church girl, or you'll find yourself walking around comparing yourselves to other people, showing contempt towards other people. Spiritual arrogance and self-righteousness and comparison always leads you to look down your nose at other people and tear down other people with your words because other people looking bad is the only way you can continue to feel good. To feel like you're a good person. But the Bible says that other people are never the standard we measure ourselves by. Which brings us to the third thing that we see about this haughty Pharisee. And it's his main problem. Three, he was blind to his sin and to God's holiness. So he's putting all this together throughout his life. 
super religious guy. He, he's been comparing himself to the mess in other people's life that's made him feel like a good person. He's proud of all the good deeds on his spiritual resume. And he's convinced himself that he's kind of a good person. Not just kind of a good person. He considers himself to be a really good person. The kind of person that God would reward with eternal life. The kind of good person that God would have to let into heaven. He's a very religious guy. He would say, of course I'm a good person. If you were to ask him the question right here, do you believe good people get to heaven? He would say, of course I do. Good people like me. Look how far ahead out in front of everybody I am with my morality. Look how far ahead out I am in front of everybody else with my goodness. Look at my good behavior. Look at how consistent I am with my good religious activity. Of course good people go to heaven. People like me. And yet in his pride, this reeks of pride. In his pride, he's blind to the clear biblical truth that good people don't go to heaven because good people don't exist. Good people don't go to heaven because good people don't exist. We only see that when we measure ourselves and whether we're good by the standard not of other people's morality, but by the standard of God's holiness. And by that standard, the Apostle Paul gives us the great all of us get. In Romans 3, verses 10 and 11, he quotes there from the Old Testament, As it is written, no one is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Good people don't go to heaven because good people aren't real. Good people don't exist. And this Pharisee is blind to that reality. You can see it, you can, you can see it in his prayer. There's no humble confession of his own sin. There's no humble confession of his own weakness. He's, he's so proud. He's, so, he's turning thanksgiving into boasting about his own good deeds. He's full of pride. His problem is he's got a big, false view of himself and a very small, weak view of God. But when you read God's Word and your heart is exposed to the true picture that it gives us, you get a true, big, biblical picture of who God is. You see how holy He is. You see how righteous He is. You see how majestic He is. You see how marvelous He is. And that big view of God, what it does is it gives me the correct, smaller view of myself as the weak and wretched sinner that I am, that all of us are. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When we see ourselves in light of who God is, we understand that sin infects the hearts of human beings, including myself. We're all infected by the disease of sin. And you know, it just took one sin to infect you. It just took one sin to put you in a position where you're deserving of the wrath of God. It just took one sin to make you guilty of cosmic treason against the creator, holy God of the universe. Just one. You say, well, I'm not sure if I'm I'm guilty of of a sin. You start at the Ten Commandments, start at one, you're not going to make it past one. And you really don't have to go to the Ten Commandments. Proverbs 24, 9 says, Even the thought of foolishness is sin. You ever had a foolish thought? None of us can escape the reality that all of us are sinners. All of us have sinned, not just once, but multiple times, which means we are completely infected. 
That's, that, that sin, just that first one was enough Amen. to corrupt the rest of us. You say, I don't know about that. Well, let me illustrate it this way. When I was in college, uh, we had, uh, I lived with like five other roommates, and we shared a refrigerator, and uh, we were very careful to label our food with a Sharpie because in college, sometimes food's all you got. So you're going to protect it with your life. Stay away from my food. Um, and so uh, we all shopped at the same grocery store. So all the, we, when we had milk in there, that all, all those looked the same. So we were very careful to put our initials on that. Well, one day I remember coming back to the dorm. And, um, and I, because I live with my, you know, I was, it was my, just mine. You know, I drank out of the jug right out of the refrigerator. Maybe some of you still do that. I don't know. And so I went into the, uh, the, I went into the kitchen, opened the fridge, grabbed the milk, uh, went and tipped it back to get me a swig of uh, some milk. And uh, in, in my head, I'm like, did I get milk with pulp? <laughs> These chunks of curdled milk began to come into my mouth. I'll spare you from the rest of the story, all right? But what I had done is I had grabbed one of my roommate's old jugs of milk that had just been sitting there evidently. And I was so mad. I was like, dude, why do you have old milk in the refrigerator? He's like, why don't you read? It doesn't have your initials on it. But you know what my roommate did not do? He did not say, hey, give me that jug of milk. All right. With all the curdled pieces in it. You know what he didn't do? He didn't spend the next 30, 45 minutes fishing out the, the corrupted, curdled parts, little pieces out of that milk and, and fishing that out and then putting little, little spurts of fresh milk back in the jug and then put it back in the refrigerator. He didn't do that. No, he understood something all of us understand that with some things, just a little bit of corruption poisons the batch. And so it is with our life spiritually. One sin, we've committed way more than one, Means we're guilty. We are infected. No one is good. No, not one. And you can spend the rest of your life trying to be good. You can spend the rest of your life trying to scoop out the bad out of your life, the spoiled, simple parts of your life, and trying to replace it with little spurts of religious activity and good living and, and all of that stuff. And yet it will not alter the condition of your sinful heart. Your heart will still be as rotten and as spoiled and as sinful and as bad and as dead beneath all of that collection of good religious works as it ever was. That's what this story helps us understand. Some of you here this morning, you're, you're, you're pretty good at being good. That's not a bad thing to seek to be good. Some of you are proud about how good of a citizen you are. You're not going to be one of those neighbors on Tuesday night who's firing off your fireworks at midnight, waking up your neighbors. Not you. You follow your, whatever it's called, HOA rules. You do what you're supposed to do. When you go to the grocery store, you take your empty buggy back to that stall across the parking lot. Because you want to be a good citizen. You're, good at being, you're pretty good at being good. You pick up trash on the sidewalk even though it's not your trash. You're a nice neighbor. Hey, you don't speed. You, you work hard to not text while you drive. You, you, you're pretty good at being good at a lot of things. Hey, you, you're even a per- you, don't even sneak, you don't even sneak candy into the movie theater. You're pretty good at being good. There's a, maybe one of you out there, if anybody. Hey, you're so good, you actually help your friends move. You don't like ignore that text like the rest of us do. You move this week, and I, I must have missed that text. Hey, and some of you, some of you, you're also really good at church activity. You go to church every Sunday. You may 
be pretty good at reading your Bible. You may be pretty good at listening to Christian music. You may have even done some good actions you thought you were supposed to be to do, like walk an aisle or to get baptized, and you even are good at serving in church. But if you think for a minute that any of that impresses a holy and righteous God, if you think that good external works that you've strung together over a lifetime have helped you earn admission into the kingdom of God, and that the good works in your life will get you into heaven, you are mistaken. And you have a small view of God. And you don't understand how holy God is. And how sinful you are. And that no amount of good deeds can alter the condition of your heart. If you're trusting in your goodness to make you right with God. Your heart is still as rotten and sinful and bad and dead. Beneath all of those good works as it ever was. And listen, if you pridefully run in that lane of trying to be good enough. And you leave earth in that position and in that posture, you will leave earth unjustified. And your life will slam into the awful, eternal reality that good people don't go to heaven because good people don't exist. We're sinners. We're dead in our sin. And we're headed for hell. And our good works can't save us. Now, some of you are like, okay, you keep saying that. That good people don't go to heaven because good people don't exist. Well, then who does? Not good people. Good people don't go to heaven. Forgiven people go to heaven. People who have thrown themselves on the mercy of God go to heaven. You know what that means? We don't need better performance. We need pardon. We don't need to try and morally function better. We need forgiveness. We don't need better moral behavior. We need mercy. Which is exactly what the second person in the story walks away. Uh, as having done, and he's justified. He receives mercy. He throws himself on the mercy of God. Look at verse 13. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Two things, quick things, about the humble publican. Notice these two things. And notice um, the contrast here. Number one, he was humble before God. He approaches God with a humble attitude. Jesus is describing in very vivid language right here. Somebody who approached God with great humility. We see it in his posture and how he's standing far off. Like, notice how it, notice how, how in contrast this posture is um, to the Pharisee. How different it is. He's, the Pharisee had a small view of God, big view of himself. Right here, the publican's humble. He's got a big view of God, a small view of himself. He doesn't feel even worthy to come close. We, we sense right here his sense of unworthiness and how he lifts his eyes to heaven or he doesn't feel worthy to lift his eyes to heaven. And that day, you would actually, it was, very, it was a common practice in that community, a religious practice, to lift your eyes when you pray. We bow our heads to pray for reverence. They lifted their eyes to pray. He doesn't even feel worthy to do that. He's in a humble, low posture before God. Notice notice this. He doesn't compare himself to anybody. He's not reading off his best deeds. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount in verse 3 and 4. Many of you uh, will recognize this, maybe have memorized it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. There Jesus is explaining in that sermon sermon that it's those not who come to God proud, not who come to God with good works in their hands and good behavior and good deeds. It's those who come to God empty-handed. 
Those who come to God and recognize their spiritual bankruptcy before God. It's those who mourn over their sin, not gloss over their sin or fail to see it. They are the ones who find comfort, Jesus says right there in the Sermon on the Mount. They're the ones who find the kingdom. They're the ones who find eternal life. And this is the humble attitude that we see in the publican. He's poor in spirit. And this is something I want to make clear that we don't work up. This is a work of the Holy Spirit inside the heart of a sinner. This is something that the Spirit produces as He convicts us and humbles us so that we'll look outside of ourselves for salvation. So this man, we see, is humble before God. That's the first thing we see that characterizes him. And second, he sought mercy from God. He cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, I want to show you something right here. Your translation, like mine, may read, be merciful to me, a sinner. I can almost guarantee that all of your English translations say that. But that's not what the Greek manuscript, that's not how it reads in the original language. Because of the structure of the sentence, this is the way it needed to be translated into the English. But if you go back and look at the Greek, it says, God be merciful to me, the sinner. Why does he say the sinner? Why does he say that? What does he mean by that? Well, there's no comparison going on. This is in stark contrast to the Pharisee. He isn't looking at himself as a sinner among many sinners. All that matters right now in his prayer, we see, is him before God, focused on himself before a holy God. It doesn't matter how he compares to anybody else. He's not focused on the Pharisee and his hypocrisy. He's not focused on how he compares to like the really, really sketchy tax collectors in the community, how his life matches up with them. He isn't even confessing himself to be a sinner among many. He says, I am the sinner. Standing before a holy God. In desperate need of mercy. And that word mercy is key right there. What does it mean, God be merciful to me, a sinner? The Greek word there for mercy, it means to expiate. It means propitiate. The word propitiate throughout Scripture, it carries the idea of sacrifice. A sacrifice that will satisfy wrath, that will turn wrath into favor, which is what we need as sinners. Now, remember where all of this is taking place as you consider what the word mercy means there. That it means propitiate, which should bring into our minds sacrifice. This is all happening at the temple. What happens at the temple? Sacrifices. Sacrifices that are being made to atone for the sins of people. It's almost as if he's crying out, God, let the blood being shed in this temple cover me. I'm a sinner. I'm guilty. Help me. Save me. This is a prayerful request for atonement. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Well, and what's really interesting is that that verb form for mercy only comes up one other time in the New Testament. So you can draw a line from this text to the one other place in Scripture where you see it used. And it's Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, where it says, Therefore he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make, here it is, propitiation, to show mercy. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. So let's connect all of this. The answer to the tax collector's prayer for mercy is Jesus himself. The tax collector is humbly expressing his need for mercy. Mercy that requires a sacrifice. He understands. He's committed cosmic treason. He understands. He's committed 
sins. He's guilty in the presence of a holy God who rules the universe. He's committed an eternal sin that he can't wash away out of his life on his own. He needs somebody else to pay a price. An eternal price to make a sacrifice that only God Himself can make. And at Calvary, that's exactly what God does. Jesus, God in flesh, there lays down His life, becoming the sacrifice that we need to atone for our sins. Jesus lived the perfect life that we can't live. Hey, there's good people don't exist except for one person ever in the history of humanity. It's none of us, it's Jesus. He lived a good and perfect life that we can't live. He was nailed on the cross in our place. He absorbed the wrath of God in our place. He bore our punishment in our place, satisfied the wrath of God, became the satisfactory substitute that we needed, which is what propitiation means. And was buried, but He didn't stay dead. Three days later, He rises again as a testimony that God accepted His sacrifice for atonement for our sins. And this is the message of Christianity. You ready? It's not that those who trust in themselves and their good works are made right with God. It's those who trust in Jesus. Who look alone to Him for mercy and accept His sacrifice for their sins alone. Who receive the favor of God in place of the wrath of God. It's not what I do that justifies me before a holy God. It's only by accepting what Christ has done. Dead, prideful religion spells entrance into heaven like this. D-O. Do. True, biblical Christianity spells entrance into heaven like this. D-O-N-E. Done. You simply receive what Christ has done. Now, does this mean the way that I live my life? Does does that mean that that doesn't matter? Not at all. Not at all. When we get saved, we not only get entrance into heaven, we not only get eternal life, we get a transformed life. God begins an internal transformation in us by the power of the gospel supplied by the Holy Spirit and it changes what we do. It changes how we live. It changes the affections of our heart. It begins to transform us from the inside out. But there's a big difference now when it comes to how I live. There's a big difference in what motivates me to live a good God-honoring life. And it's the difference between the word for and from. Now I obey, now that I've thrown myself on the mercy of God, and I've received new life, not just eternal life, but transformed life from from God. Now I don't only obey God, I'm not obeying God and doing God-honoring things, like for salvation, or for mercy, or for justification, but it's from it. We pursue God's will, not so God will love us and accept us, but because He already loves us and accepts us in Christ Jesus. Because we have the eternal permanent position in His family as a child of God. So we need this reminder today, don't we? We need to preach it to our hearts every day. It's not what I do that justifies me before a holy God. It's only by accepting what Christ has done for me. Have you accepted that? I want to end by addressing two groups of people in the room. I want to address those who are lost and those who are saved. Let me begin by addressing those who are lost. Some of you walked into this room this morning and you walked in here somebody who's been living as a rebel on the run from God. You walked in here 
limping, filled with shame, broken about the way that you've lived your life. You know something is wrong inside of your life. You can't even really put words to all of it. You just know the way you've been living life hasn't worked out. And you know something's broken. Something's wrong on the inside of you that needs to be fixed. And you know what? A big part of you wonders if it can even be fixed. Some of you wonder, like, why, why am I even in here? I don't even know if I belong in a place like this. I don't even know if there's hope for me. Well, you know why? It may be because you've understood God's word as this collection of good stories about all these good people who do a bunch of good things and are good with God. Nope. You start walking through scripture, you start really reading it, you start really studying it, you realize it ain't, it ain't a story about a bunch of good people. It's a story about a bunch of messed up people and one good person. You just start walking through the Old Testament and take a look for yourself. The father of our faith, Abraham, the father of Abraham, his many sons, right arm, left arm, that guy. Father of our faith, he's been called. He's messed up. There's two occasions they go into a town where he is afraid that the men there are going to try to kill him to get to his wife and take advantage of her. And so what he does is he looks to his wife and says, hey, why don't you just go ahead and give yourself up to him? Not good. Another time, his wife is unable to have a child. She's older and not able to, to bear a child. And so she comes to him and says, hey, I have an idea. Why don't you have a baby with, with the maid, with the servant? And instead of saying no, he goes, okay, yeah, good idea. Right. Messed up. Right. How about David? Pretty messed up. Is anybody else in here? Not only... Had an affair with your best friend's wife, but then killed your best friend to cover up for your sin. That's David. He's messed up. And if God can save David, if God can use David to write a huge portion of the Bible, he can save you. Peter denied Christ. Paul, before he got saved, when he was Saul, he had a hand in murdering the first Christian martyr, Stephen. And then look at this tax collector. He's the worst among worst. This is not a story about good men and women who did good and got into heaven. It's a story about bad, broken, messed up, dead sinners like you and like me who encounter a holy God, throw themselves on the mercy of God, and He makes them alive. Don't make the mistake if I'm talking to you this morning. And you feel like you're at the end of your rope of coming in here and thinking, man, I'm bad and I've messed up my life and I'm far from God. And so I think what I need to start doing is cleaning myself up. I need to try really hard to be a better church attender. I need to try really hard to read my Bible more. I need to try really hard to be a good person. God can change and save anybody. But He doesn't do it through you trying to be a better person. Becoming a Christian isn't about you cleaning yourself up before you come to Jesus. It's about you like this tax collector coming to God, coming to Christ and throwing yourself on his mercy and saying, I don't have what it takes, but I believe what you did on the cross counted for me. Save me. That is who God saves. Some of you are lost this morning because you've been trusting in your goodness to justify you before God. You didn't walk in here limping this morning. You walked in here kind of confident. 
that you're going to heaven based on how good you are, based on how you've always been a pretty good person. You never were that person who went out on Friday nights and partied. You've always tried to be a good neighbor. You've always tried to be a good church person. You've always tried to do the right thing. But if you're leaning on those things to make you right with God, none of those things have altered the condition of your heart. God, listen carefully, does not want your righteous deeds. He wants to switch out your rebellious dead heart with a new one. So that you will then do things for the right reason. For His glory. If you're here and you're saved this morning. This is a message within this text that we've got to preach to our hearts every single day. It's not what I do that justifies me before a holy God. I'm justified because I accepted what Christ has done. Listen, fellow believer, brother or sister in Christ, don't get caught up in trying to do good works to be kept by God. Don't fall into the faulty thinking that now that you've, you are saved, by God's grace, now you have to try to, like, try to earn your way you know, in staying in the family. Don't fall into the, the wrong thinking of thinking, man, I've had a bad week this past week. And I think what I need to do is I need to have a really good week so we can cancel out the bad week last week. What is the answer for you if you've had a bad week? Have you failed this week? Have you fallen on your face this week? Have you not, you feel like you've, you've kind of failed at being the husband God's called you to be, or the wife God's called you to be, or the mom or the dad or the co-worker or the person, your thought life's off? Have you, you feel like you, you know Christ, you're saved, but you, you failed. Where do you go from here? Listen, you once again seek His mercy. You once again seek forgiveness. Again, you turn from your sin. You repent again. You humble yourself before God. Humbling yourself before God is not a one-time act. Humbling yourself before God and then just moving on with the rest of your life. It's a lifestyle. For the believer, there's desperation, independence, and humility that we live in every day like this tax collector. And we remember that every day is an opportunity to celebrate that we have experienced the greatest exchange ever. He got our sin. I got His righteousness. By the mercy and grace of God, I've been blanketed eternally by the righteousness of Christ. And I'm right with Him. Only by His grace. What a wonderful thing to celebrate. Amen. And with that in mind, we walk out of here and we live from that, not for that. Amen. We have that. We have right standing in the presence of the Holy God in Christ. So let's go live our lives from that, not for that this week. Let's pray.